0: The following is a pre recorded program. An atheist YouTuber has challenged a video of mine on the historical evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we've got a response today.
1: It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator Dr. Michael Brown, your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866 34 Truth to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Hey
0: friends, this is Michael Brown. In the moment, I'm going to be joined by Professor Jonathan McClatchy uh, to talk about a video I've been asked to respond to. Really, really well done. I'm super impressed with the graphics and the presentation by an atheist, I believe Paul Enns, who goes by Paula Gia, an atheist YouTuber who challenges a lot of the claims of Christians. I wasn't familiar with him at all. There are a lot of folks out there, of course, that I don't know. And I, I got a message on Twitter from a Capturing Christianity podcast. Dr. Brown, do you have any interest in having an informal exchange with an atheist YouTuber on the evidence for the resurrection on my channel? The guy I have in mind is Paula Gia. Let me know. So I wrote back, thanks for the invitation, but it's not really my specialty. I love debate and would gladly join you for a variety of subjects, but there are plenty of folks who could do a better job than me. Have you reached out to any of them? And do you know Professor Jonathan McClatchy? Uh, he wrote back, I do. Apologia specifically asked to debate you. That's why I asked. No problem at all. And I said, another atheist and former Muslim asked to debate me because he, know, he knew I was gracious to my opponents. But here, since our gospel witness is at stake, as well as this man's soul, it's best to get someone else who can present the evidence more strongly. That being said, anything in my wheelhouse to debate, I'm there. So anyway, I found out that, that someone on Twitter that has challenged my views about cultural issues, sent him a video I did, just a real short summary, five minutes of evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus. I've I've got lots of short videos where I just summarize things, put that out, and then sent to Paul Gia, who said, hey, why don't we have a debate over it? That's how it went through capturing Christianity. When I declined, he then put out the video. So, Paul, really well done. Your stuff is incredibly well done. And I'm not going to try to equal it with like all the snippets and clicks and, and all of that. But uh, if you haven't seen the videos, they're they're really well done. graphics a lot, must take a lot of time and effort, and then he's got an animated figure as as him. So thumbs up on that. great, great job. And raises a lot of good questions, some fair questions that we we want to analyze. And uh, I wanted to bring Professor McClatchy on because this is dialogue that we've had, lots of the issues, historical evidence, those kind of things. And as a specialist in these areas, I thought, well, great, let's Let's take the time. Paul took the time to put the video out, which I really appreciate, Paul. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for the offer to debate. Um, but I'd suggest do debate with someone like, like like Jonathan, because this way you can really get into areas you both focused on more. So Jonathan McClatchy, assistant professor, of biology at, at which college in Boston? I'm at Sattler College. Sattler College. And uh, where did you do your, your doctoral studies?
2: I did my uh, PhD at Newcastle University in England. And what was your subject? Um, I studied the evolution of the eukaryotic cell cycle.
0: All right. It, <laughs> so you,
2: the cell division cycle.
0: Got it. Got divide. it. Uh, so you have, though, spent many, many years studying the historical background to the New Testament, the claims of the New Testament, and have become a specialist in, in those areas as as well. So is this something you feel comfortable talking about, responding to the things that he raised? Is this something you'd say, hey, you, you believe you have some expertise here?
2: Absolutely. Glad to interact with the uh, claims and assertions of Apologia. Is there anywhere in particular you'd like to start? Or? Yeah,
0: so let's, let's start with the first claim that I made, that the New Testament is, is the best attested ancient document from, from that time in the world, that it has the, the earliest uh, copies and we'll get back to the exact timing of it in a minute, but the general claim, do you think that's an exaggerated claim when you look at, say, Iliad and Odyssey or or ancient historical works, how old the manuscripts are, how many we have? How well attested is the New Testament in
2: comparison? Sure. I mean, the New Testament is uh, very well attested. I mean, this isn't something that's Uh, In dispute among New Testament textual critics. Uh, Certainly, by comparison with other ancient works, the New Testament is very well um, attested as to its uh, textual integrity. That we actually have what was written down by the uh, original authors. Uh, There, there is a tendency in some apologetic circles, unfortunately, to exaggerate um, some of these comparisons. Um, So, as you may know, um, there was a book that was published. a few years ago called Myths and Mistakes in New Testament textual Criticism, which is a really excellent book. It's uh, uh, edited by Peter M. J. Gurry and Elijah Hickson, and it um, evaluates and assesses some uh, misinformation that you often find, exaggerations relating to the discipline of New Testament Criticism. So um, oftentimes you'll find in popular apologetics literature where an apologist will take uh, the latest and greatest figure of New Testament Greek manuscripts, and we'll compare that to works like uh, the Iliad or, or Caesar's Gallic Wars or what have you. And they'll take uh, the figures for those other ancient sources from F.F. Uh, F. Bruce from decades ago and won't update th- those figures. And so you're, you're comparing essentially apples and oranges at that point. So it's important to, uh, to use the most recent uh, figures and uh, that uh, that are available and um and and so it's it's important not to to, to make that mistake. Another um, common mistake that people make is they'll take um, say the earliest uh, New Testament fragment, which is uh, largely widely agreed to be P fifty P fifty two, and they will which, which is the John Rylands fragment, which is uh, a, a small credit card sized uh, fragment from the Gospel of John, um, which is generally dated to be. Um, composed between 125 to 175 A.D., perhaps even a little bit later. Um, it's difficult to get more specific than that because of the manner in which these are dated. But um, it's important to bear in mind also that the vast majority of New Testament Greek manuscripts are, are quite late. Uh, about It's more than 90, 94% of them are from the 9th century and later. So we have to include those caveats when we're talking about this subject. But I think the more impressive... Uh, um, Case uh, from uh, the New Testament textual transmission uh, pertains to the different uh, 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 lines of transmission that you have. And so it would be very difficult to impose some sort of textual uniformity uh, upon the text in the same way that is done in Islam in the 650s by Uthman ibn Affan. And the third of the right guided like Caleb. So all that to say, I, I do think that a good case can be made there. I just think it's important not to overstep uh, what what the, what the evidence actually shows. Right,
0: and and Paul Paul correctly called me out on something just a misstatement on my end when I said the earliest fragments or earliest manuscripts come from within a generation of the apostles. I should have said within a century because that would be, that would be the earliest that he referred to. So he knew exactly what manuscript I was referencing when I said generation misstatement. So thank you, you got me on that should say, with the first century. So when you talk about the, the multiple attestations, what, what would those be? You know, because he said on the video, hey, look, it's just a matter of you have so many, that means it was popular, not necessarily well attested, but there's so many different lines of attestation. As you said, it, it's just hard to remove them all and, and take them all away because so much was, was being repeated, spoken, written. So what are those multiple lines?
2: Yeah. So um, as I said, we have multiple lines of transmission. It's not just that we have one uh, uh, governing authority that uh, produces an authorized uh, uh, textual tradition. Uh, We have multiple lines of independent transmission or multiple streams of transmission, which converge upon a substantially common text. And that uh, I I think, I mean, it it would be certainly very difficult to deliberately uh, alter uh, the text of the New Testament because of these different lines of transmission It would be very difficult to do so without leaving a paper trail and uh, um, uh, and and so if there if there um, are uh, textual variants in the New Testament we can be sure that the original is there somewhere and we can employ certain, uh, practices uh, in new testament textual criticism to try to discern what the original variant is so um, being a difficult reading for example um, all other things being held equal will be more likely to be original because it's more likely a scribe is going to change a more difficult reading to a less difficult reading than the other way around uh earliness of the manuscript uh, the general reliability of that particular manuscript uh, and uh and, and um, multiple attestation in the manuscript tradition, uh, and so forth. And it's important to bear in mind that when we talk about attestation here, we're talking about the textual integrity of the New Testament, right? We're not talking about the historicity yes. of those sources, right? So it, it, you could have a perfect copy of something that's factually false. Um, so that, it's important to, to make that distinction as well.
0: So the simple statement would be that we can point to the, uh, the abundant attestation of the New Testament, the ancient world, compared to, other documents, but sometimes we've overstated that or oversimplified that, which certainly someone could criticize me for doing in a five minute video, summarizing, giving highlights that that could be, uh, stated in in two general terms or as, as a misstated generation versus century. And for me, uh, critics like, like Paul and others, We'll just sharpen what we're doing. That's what happened with decades of work that I do in Jewish ministry and apologetics. So all the sharpening that you can give, all the clarification, wonderful. And thanks, Paul, for pointing out the, uh, the misstatement about generation versus century. All right, so uh, let's, let's start here. We've got about two and a half minutes before break, then resume. Paul really took issue with my referring to eyewitness accounts or eyewitness writings in the Gospels or in the New Testament when I mentioned eyewitnesses are are passing these things on, now we're dealing with historicity. So let's start and we'll take as much time as we need. Give me, in your view, the best evidence for eyewitness accounts in the New Testament.
2: Absolutely, so there's a number of different lines of evidence that one could adduce. one category of evidence, for example, would be uh, undesigned coincidences, um, that, and uh, we could talk about various examples, both in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Let me just give you one before the break, quickly. Or, um, so in, in Mark chapter 6, we have these um, the uh, feeding of the 5,000 miracle, and Mark gives the explanation for why uh, Jesus has disciples come to a deserted area to eat, because it's very crowded. Um, There's people coming and going, and so they have no leisure even to eat. So Jesus has them come away to a deserted area to eat. That's in verse 31 of Mark chapter 6. And then in verse 39, it says that, so unfortunately uh, for them, the crowds followed Jesus. um, And Jesus, in verse 39, has the crowds sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, the grass, of course, in Israel is not green. It's brown throughout the majority of the year, except... uh, at relatively a narrow window of time during the spring, uh, because of the higher levels of rainfall that coincides with the Jewish feast of Passover. Now, if we go over to John's account of the feeding of the five thousand, John chapter six, we um, John doesn't mention the people coming and going, which provides the motivation for going to the deserted area, and he doesn't mention the green grass, but he does mention in verse four. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand which then illuminates why it's so busy, because there's all these pilgrims coming in for the Feast of Passover, and it also illuminates why the grass is green, according to Mark, because it's the right time of year during the spring. And so that sort of undesigned coincidence or casual interlocking between uh, Mark and John uh, in an undesigned way points to, uh, or is most consistent with, the historical reportage model for understanding uh, the origins of these these texts.
0: All right, and and friends, when we talk about these things, undesigned coincidences, this is not some— new theory that someone came up with, e- even people doing interviews when they're trying to look for who's giving accurate stories and account, you know, in crime scene or something like that, or who's, who's making things up, But when you're going back through history to look over okay, which sources are reliable, these are the kind of telltale signs that, that again, undesigned, unplanned, that verify what the Pope's saying. We're going to continue with this question of evidence for eyewitness accounts in the gospel and act
1: can resist us! This is It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire. I'm responding today with the help of Professor Jonathan McLeod to a video done on the Paula Gia uh, website uh, or excuse me, YouTube page. We'll make sure we put up a link to his video uh, rebutting my video, and then hopefully we could get a dialogue between Paul and Jonathan. I think that would that would be great. If Paul wants to discuss with me issues about messianic prophecy or Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, something like that, that that's great. Happy to do it. But something like this, which is not my specialty area, then let's bring in someone that is a specialist in it. Because Paul, I understand you spend a lot of time examining these things. So good, let's get equal, equal in, in terms of specialists in that regard. Okay, uh, at the end of the video, when I, I reference eyewitnesses again, Paul says, well, you should have spent more time on that. Well, a five-minute video, trying to summarize a lot, I got through as much as I could in that short period of time, very conscious of the fact that I was painting with, with broad strokes necessarily. But since that is something you raised a couple of times in his video, let's dig in more. From a historical perspective, what other evidence is there of eyewitnesses?
2: Absolutely. So I mentioned in the previous section, uh, segment, uh, the undesigned coincidences, and I gave a particular example uh, relating to how Mark dovetails with John in relation to the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. Let's continue on that theme. So if we look at the next verse, so we just read John 6, verse 4, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And let's continue to the next verse, verse 5, which says, Jesus. so um, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Now, this raises a question in the mind of the audience. Why does Jesus turn to Philip here in particular? Philip's a fairly minor character in the Gospels. Uh, why not say turn to Judas Iscariot, who's in charge of the money bag or something like that? Well, if you go six chapters later to a completely different part of John's Gospel, different context, different Passover feast, in John chapter 12, we learn in verses 21-22 uh, that there were some Greeks at the Feast of Passover who wanted to speak to Jesus. And it tells us that they came to Philip who uh, was from Bethsaida in Galilee to ask him, Sir, if we wish to see Jesus. And notice that John very casually uh, mentions that uh, Philip is from this town of Bethsaida in Galilee. Now, if we go over to Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, this is in Luke chapter 9, and we look at verse 10. Notice that Luke doesn't mention Philip in this context at all, but he does tell us in verse 10. On the return, the apostles told them all they had done, and he took them and withdrew uh, apart to a place called, to a town called Bethsaida. And that's where the feeding of the five thousand takes place, in Bethsaida. And so by putting together these uh, puzzle pieces, if you will, from Luke 9, John 6 and John 12, now we have a complete picture or a cogent explanation of why Jesus turns to Philip in John 6 5. Philip's a local guy. He knows where the shops are to buy bread. But n- notice that that's never explicitly spelled out for the reader. One has to do the detective work of putting those pieces together, drawing information from those disparate texts.
0: And, and of course, there's so much we could get into with geographical references or, or ways of speaking or names that would have been known to people at that time, but later would not have been known whole books have been written on that, but just, we're giving just, just some of the, some of the evidences, some of the ideas here, which you can see it's not, well, it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, I'm just going to believe it. And and Jonathan, that's not your orientation, is it,
2: towards scripture? Absolutely uh, not. I'm a very staunch evidentialist. Uh, so I, I, my belief in Christianity is grounded in the public evidence that's objectively accessible to, to anyone, regardless of their current perspective.
0: Got it. And, and I think if you're an atheist and you're seeking truth and you, you're, the idea of revelation is something that you discount, then, then listen to an evidentialist talk about these things. All right. Um, what about when you have in the New Testament where it tells us what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was by himself, or what happened when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? And according to Paul, that's no different than an alleged revelation to Muhammad. Uh, how, how do we answer that charge?
2: So there are always going to be cases where we just don't know exactly how the what sources the the gospel authors are drawing upon as they give us uh, the their accounts that we find in the gospels. Um, I mean, it's quite plausible; it's certainly not implausible that Jesus himself disclosed yep. to the disciples what he had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are there are cases though where. We have private conversations where we actually do have some at least plausible um, uh, explanation for how they came upon that information. So, for instance, in um, Matthew chapter 14, we have um, an account that uh, of Herod Antipas talking to his servants about Jesus. This is in Matthew 14, uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said, to his servants, that phrase is unique to Matthew, to his servants. This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him, right? Now, this raises two interesting questions in the mind of the reader. Number one, why is uh, uh, Herod having a conversation about Jesus with his servants specifically? Number two, how does Matthew know what Herod is saying to his servants, presumably in the privacy of his own palace? Well if we turn over, Matthew doesn't tell us. Now, if we turn over to Luke's account, not the parallel pericope, but if we turn over to Luke chapter 8, we have a list of Jesus' female disciples who followed him out of Galilee in verses 1 through 3. It says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager. Mm. So one of Jesus' female disciples was actually married to someone in the highest ranks of Herod's employment, which then illuminates how Matthew plausibly could come to know what Herod was saying to his servants in the privacy of his own palace. Got it. So, so even,
0: even though there are many possible explanations of how something, the inspiration could spread, we have a very plausible chain here and it's not a coordinated thing where the gospel writers let's say hey let's all put our heads together and make this thing work it's just one of these look at this we've got the link right here okay um the criterion of embarrassment so Mm -hmm. the idea that it's unlikely that you are going to portray your leaders in negative light if, if you're trying to lift someone up let's say someone's running for political office you don't now campaign with embarrassing stories about that person so he downplays it says there could be various reasons for doing it and then even plays a clip from cold case detective uh, j-, uh, j warner wallace who seems to downplay it in the clip the criterion of embarrassment and then says this is not really used by secular historians so speak to that
2: yeah absolutely um yeah pol- apology is simply wrong on that particular point uh there are there are a number of cases actually many cases that one could adduce of uh, the criterion of embarrassment being utilized employed outside the realm of new testament studies uh, i can give you one or two examples or more and um, so let's uh, look for example at, so at josephus for example and uh, this here's a quote from Martin Goodman, in his book Roman and, Rome and Jerusalem, The Clash of Ancient Civilizations, he says, and I quote, to accept Josephus's often tendentious evaluation of the motives and characters of the Jews and Romans, whose actions constitute his narrative, would be rash, but to accept the details of his narrative, particularly when they contradict his own explanation of events, and so survive in the narrative only because they happened, is reasonable. As a result, the story of Jerusalem in the years up to 70 CE can be told in far more depth than that of any other city in the Roman Empire at this time, apart from the story of Rome itself. So there's one example of of the Criterion of Embarrassment being employed outside the realm of of New Testament studies. Another example uh, from, uh, this is concerning Confucius, and this is from uh, H.G. Creel in uh, Confucius, The Man and the Myth. And, And I quote, he says, One of the best evidences of his authenticity is the fact that while the Analects is obviously a Confucian book, it contains much that Confucians would have preferred that it not include. Chapter 19 details squabbles between the disciples, and 1925 tells us that one of them said that Confucius was no better than the disciple Tzu Kung. In 626, it is related that Confucius had an interview with a notorious duchess. This has embarrassed countless uh, British Confucians. Uh, and was used by their enemies to mock them in hand times. Yet these things were not deleted from the text, which must increase our respect for it. Um, another example, uh, in his book, uh, Achen- Achenaton and the Origins of Monotheism, Egyptologist uh, James Hoffmeier, uh, he, he briefly talks about uh, the first intermediate period of Egypt, and he covers a, a piece of wisdom literature that speaks of this time period called the Teachings of Merikah, and in the teaching of Meriker, um, Meriker is offering advice he received from his father, Nereber, um, who at one point uh, admits defeat and failure. And this is, of course, totally uncharacteristic of pharaohs to typically boast of their accomplishments and, and spin defeats into something like victories. And so Hoffmeyer employs the principle of embarrassment to argue the admission of defeat means it likely happened so he says and i quote mirabur uncharacteristically for a pharaoh takes the blame even though he was not directly involved nor he he commanded his troops to desecrate the long um, revered necropolis that went back to the end of the fourth millennium bc what makes mirabur's confessions credible is that egyptian kings rarely admit wrongdoing and there is no political advantage for this monarch to make such an admission the reality is that pharaohs typically do not report on failures or, or, or they turn them propagandistically into successes. Consequently, one ought to consider the descriptions of fighting in Abidus as reflecting the struggle between North and South in the first intermediate period. So there's just a, a few examples. There's more as well. All so, right. So, so
0: the, again, the question is: Why include that account? How does it enhance? How does it make the person look better? What's the what's the reason? What's the motivation? When it comes to New Testament, just just in a minute, what would be the motivation for including so many embarrassing accounts? of the disciples unless there's truth behind it.
2: You're completely correct, because when an author includes details that are counterproductive to his cause or agenda, that tends to increase the credibility of the account. Uh, even if it isn't sufficient to establish the historicity of the account, at least it, it bodes in its favor, it raises the probability of its historicity relative to what it would have been otherwise. And so it can be taken within the uh, the broader cumulative case for the reliability of these texts.
0: All right, And Jonathan, we've got a whole lot more time, but you have a website for those seeking, struggling, having questions. What website is that?
2: So my website is uh, talkaboutdoubts.com. And we basically have assembled a team of more than 60 scholars and um, specialists in different subjects, philosophy, science, uh, New Testament, Old Testament, biblical archaeology, and so forth. And basically people land on our website who are struggling with doubts and questions about the christian faith and um, often it's u- usually it's christians who are struggling with doubts or perhaps ex-christians who want to explore whether there's a rational way back to faith and then we put them in the a form on our website and then we put them in contact with a specialist or a, an expert who can uh set up a one-on-one zoom meeting to talk with them about their doubts and confidence so talkaboutdoubts.com and then my my essays are also as to my personal website com. all right awesome
0: we'll be right back
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Welcome back to The Line of Fire. Michael Brown here joined by Professor Jonathan McClack. He's a professor of biology, but that just gives you a, a window into his scientific mind. He's an evidentialist when it comes to the Christian faith. I had a radical experience that changed my life when I was 16 years old, heroin shooting, LSD using, hippie rock drummer, Jewish kid, no interest in God, no belief in Jesus. God radically rocked my world, changed my life. It was as I was challenged by the rabbis about what I believed that I began to dig deeper and study and ultimately got my doctorate in Semitic languages and so on. Jonathan comes from the viewpoint of show me the evidence and based on the evidence came to put his faith in Jesus. That's why I thought he'd be an ideal person That's why I suggested him from the start when, when Paula Gia wanted to debate me on some of these issues. So again, Jonathan, we even interacted before where you said, Hey, I'm going to take issue with something you said here, or you made a misstatement there. So I said, truth is what matters. It's not making me look good. You know, Paul corrected me on an error earlier. Great. Thank you. We just want to sharpen things. Even when we're giving a broad presentation, we want everything to be accurate. Okay. I made the statement when the challenge is, why don't we find more things written about Jesus in in the first century and I and I said that many of the great historians when they were when they would write they weren't they weren't writing like reporting the news today like what's the latest news I just got you know update on my iPhone rather they were stepping back and then painting broad uh writing writing histories of 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 the arc of history long periods of time so was that an accurate statement was it an overstatement because they said look Josephus and you've got others writing about events in their own in their own uh day so respond to that
2: Absolutely. Um, so in regards to uh, uh, to Josephus, um, I, I personally don't use the testimony of Flavianum in my own apologetics, and have a number of reasons for that, one of which is that I think Josephus is very plausibly getting, getting his information from Christians that he had interacted with, and uh, we already know what Christians in the first century believed about Jesus because we have the New Testament. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily independent. Yeah, um,
0: no, let me just jump in, though. But he was saying that Josephus was contrary— to what I was saying about historians writing about the broad arc of history as opposed to contemporary events because he does talk about the Jewish wars and events that he lived through. So that would be contrary. Of course, I know about Josephus, obviously, but the the broader question of did historians write kind of like writing the news like we're used to today, or did they normally wait some generations and write larger histories or is it both?
2: it, it's both, yeah. I mean, you, you, you see elements of both. Um, I, I don't think that the um, the argument from silence, by the, by the way, is a particularly good argument. And my colleague, Dr. Timothy McGrew, has an excellent article on the argument from silence showing its deficiencies. Uh, just to give a couple examples real quick. Um, so um, most of the literature from from Palestine, by the way, is, is, as you know, has is, is been lost from, from the first century. And so if, if someone else wrote about Jesus, it, it's not antecedently highly probable that we still have the work uh, to begin with. And then when you when we calibrate our expectations about what an ancient author would have written about, um, our um, our assessments of, of how likely an author would be to write about particular events supposing it happened is usually not very reliable. Uh, so, for example, uh, Josephus and Philo, both um, Philo of Alexandria, um, both pass over the expulsion of the Jews from Rome by Claudius in silence, who was mentioned by the second century Roman historian Suetonius uh, in his uh, life of Claudius in the second century. Uh, we have just one... Passing mention of the event in the first century source. that happens to be the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 2. But despite Josephus' silence, all the historians acknowledge the event took place. Another example is that uh, no first century source that we now have reports the destruction of Herculaneum and Pompeii in the eruption of Met Vesuvius in 79 AD, although Pliny the Younger gives a detailed account of the eruption itself. In fact, his, uh, his uncle, Pliny the Elder, died in that eruption. But no one infers from Pliny's silence that the event didn't take place. Um, just um, another example, so in the extensive um, memoirs of Ulysses Grant, Lincoln's General during the American Civil War, there's no mention of the Emancipation Proclamation, right? I mean, that's, examples like that could be multiplied endlessly, and then, and so we don't—our um, uh, our expectations about what an author should have included are usually not very reliable.
0: All right, then when, when I talk about the, the attestation of Jesus' death, I meant that he was crucified, that he was put to death by, by the government, and, and Paul says— Paul says, "Look, of course he died. Everybody died. Are there ancient accounts, or you know, as the as, as the decades go on, I'm not talking about contemporary, but accounts that are considered historically reliable that talk about Jesus being put to death under Pilate or being crucified or anything like that, or, was, or did they just acknowledge some guy lived and died?
2: There are. Um, so I mentioned before the Testimony of Flavianum in Josephus's Antiquities, Volume 18, um, and I give one reason why I, I personally don't use that argument." Um, uh, because I, I don't think that it contributes uh, particularly significant evidential value besides what we already have in the New Testament. Um, Ta- Cornelius Tacitus also in the early 2nd century mentions Jesus uh, and being put to death under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, in connection with the fire that broke out in Rome in 64 AD, and Nero was blamed for the fire, and so he needed a scapegoat, and so he put the blame on the Christians. And so Tacitus mentions Christians uh, and, and Christ in that context. It's plausible, though, that um, Tacitus had talked to his friend, uh, Pliny the Younger, who had much experience interrogating Christians. So again, it gives us an insight into what the Christians in the first century believed about Jesus, but we already know that from the New Testament. So, um, But of course, one might point out, well, they don't they don't, say, they don't show any knowledge of there being a dispute over whether Jesus existed. So you, you can make that point, of course. Um, but I think a much more powerful way to argue is to look at cases where, uh, and there are many of these, where there are incidental allusions in the Gospels or Acts that are corroborated in undesigned in artless ways by those sources. Um, do, do we have time for an example before the break?
0: Yeah, go ahead, go ahead.
2: Sure. So if we look at uh, Mark 6, for example, um, we have an account concerning the martyrdom of John the Baptist, and um, he is beheaded by Herod Antipas. And Josephus tells us that the reason why um, uh, Herod, um, the reason, well, according to Mark, the reason that Herod Antipas has, has John the Baptist in prison is because of Herod, if John the Baptist complaints about Herod Antipas's adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's ex-wife Herodias. But according to Josephus there's um, a slightly different motivation, namely that uh, it was because of Herod's suspicious temper in his fear of an uprising. Now, we know from Josephus also that uh, Herod's adultery with um, his brother Philip's ex-wife and his divorce of, his, of Herod's own previous wife had resulted in a war between Herod Antipas and his former father-in-law, Aratus the fourth king of the Nabataeans. And uh, this war seems to have dragged on for some time, but according to Josephus, Herod lost that war and Uh, There was this uh, rumor circulating among the Jews that the reason why Herod's armies were defeated was as God's judgment for what he had done to John the Baptist. Now, that makes a lot of sense, because when you read Mark's account, we read that the reason why Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned was because of uh, John the Baptist's complaints about Herod's adulterous relationship, the very adulterous relationship that led to that war in the first place, Mm. right? Um, and uh, and as I said before, Mark and Josephus have a slightly different take on what Herod's motivations were for having John the Baptist imprisoned. Um, now, you might wonder, okay, well, and these, of course, aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. It could be both um, reasons. Both could be part of the explanation. But why does Mark have this apparently insider scoop on what Herod's motivations were? Well, again, we know that Jesus had... A a, a female disciple, namely Joanna, who was married to someone in the highest ranks of Herod's employment. And so it it fits just as you might expect on the hypothesis of historical reportage. That's just one example of many, many that could be adduced.
0: So, you know, the thing that's interesting, just looking at, at all of this, so you can make a wonderful case in depth with many different strands for eyewitness accounts of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus as recorded in the New Testament. That gets rejected, by, by Paul, by Paul Gia, that gets rejected. Just throw all that out. And then, well, where's the evidence? Why well, hang on, we, just, we just gave you a wonderful amount of evidence here from people that were there. That gets dismissed. And now now you're going to try to find something that may have been written and may, may have been lost to history, as, as most of what was written back then was, was lost to history. And, and then you when you finally have a reference, like a passing reference in Pliny the Younger, who doesn't have an apologetic, he's not, he's not some pro-Christian apologist, he mentions what we know about Jesus being put to death under Pilate. It's also interesting that you even have second century Jewish documents that talk about these, these menim, these cultists who were followers of Yeshua that were known for their healing power. And again, this and this is in documents that are hostile to this. And I know that, that you don't rely on the Talmudic accountants on Hedron about, about the death of Jesus under the Jewish leadership— Uh, Paul Gia mentions that and says, well, that's that's fifth century. Of course, the the final editing of the Talmud is fifth, sixth century. The source itself would be earlier. But I point to that to say, you have to remember that you've had now a few centuries of Jewish leaders being accused by some of the church of being Christ killers. And if there was anything that they would want to disassociate themselves from, it's the death of Jesus. And yet the Talmud, fine, even if you blend myth and folklore with it, It still talks about Jesus being rejected by the Jewish leadership and and put to death. So that's another thing. There's no reason to include that in in a traditional Jewish document unless there's some truth behind it. So that's that's another factor of interest. In fact, we we still got a couple minutes before the break. So very, very quickly, Paul downplays the importance— of the idea that Jesus' death on the cross being a scandal is not the kind of thing that you would create, not for a Jewish audience, not for a Gentile audience. Can you unpack that?
2: Sure. Um, so uh, the, uh, the Jewish law, Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three, 23, says that anyone who is killed by being hung in the tree is under God's curse. Uh, rendered literally a heretic. And this was actually an item of mockery, both from the Jewish side and the Roman side after Jesus' death. Uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, for example. Uh, Trifo says to Justin Martyr, and uh, I'm, I'm quoting from memory here, so forgive me if it's not entirely um, word for word, but he says, these and such like scriptures sir, us to wait for he who is son of man to receive from the ancient of days the everlasting kingdom. But this so-called Christ of yours was dishonorable and inglorious, so much so the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him, for he was crucified. And uh, so you can see that the, um, the, uh, the, the Jews were mocking Christians for this belief in a crucified Messiah. And they have in mind, of course, Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three, as he says, the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him for he was crucified. Um, also, in, uh, a, 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 as for the Roman side, there's a graffiti in, in Rome which depicts uh, a, a man worshipping a crucified donkey. And the caption uh, is Aleximenos worships his god um, mm-hmm. and, and so they were mocking Christians for this belief in a crucified deity um, and so of course this was uh, something that you'd be unlikely to invent especially given that the Jews of the 1st century had no belief in a dying messiah uh, at, at the 1st century concept was that someone would um, the, the messiah was supposed to uh, overthrow the roman occupiers and reestablish a davidic reign and that's the sort of uh, mess- messianic career yeah. that you see for those other would-be false mess- messianic pretenders
0: right and and again this can this can be unpacked to great length the scandal of the crucified messiah it doesn't prove that he died for the sins of the world it doesn't prove he was the son of god it doesn't prove that he rose it's just that there's any scenario that you're unlikely to event okay if he died we, we know he does everybody dies right but why isn't that this when it's definitely gonna be a massive stumbling block. And then later it's mentioned Hit yeah, the Death Under Pontius Pilate. We will be right back.
1: It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the line of fire by calling 866-34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, if, if
0: you've got questions, doubts, and you, you're, you're a seeker, not, not a mocker, but you really you want to know the truth. You're struggling. You have questions. It's great. It's fine to have questions. Talkaboutdoubts.com. Talkaboutdoubts.com. Maybe a friend, family member, loved one used to believe doesn't or they're really struggling. They want to come to the faith, but they have questions. Questions are valid. Let the questions be asked. To those who watch the Apologia video, Genuine questions we, we welcome because truth is what matters. All right. I, I mentioned the unlikelihood of mention, of making up a virgin birth simply because it, uh, immediately you want, oh, you're born out of wedlock or you know, you'd think that in the history of religion, you'd have more leaders saying, oh, I was born of a virgin. It's, it's not something that's a common myth, but Paul's response was, well, it's very common that a, a, a god... Uh, being with, with a woman and having a child. Is that the same as the virgin birth, some god coming uh, down allegedly from having taken on human form and having sex with a woman?
2: Is that the same as the virgin birth? Were
0: we comparing apples and oranges?
2: No, I, I think it's comparing apples and oranges. Uh, though there are examples of virgin births uh, in ancient literature. I mean, there's um, Alexander the Great, for example, is said to have been born of a virgin. Um, but um, as for the criterion of embarrassment, uh, the um, virgin birth, I think, does fulfil the historical criterion of embarrassment because, according to Jewish law, the penalty for being found uh, pregnant outside of uh, marital union was was death by stoning. And in addition, uh, Joseph, Mary's uh, fiance, um, also had reason to be afraid because he would be suspected as the culprit. Um, and if Joseph were to marry his fiance, it would be seen as an admission on his part that he was responsible for the pregnancy. And and so it seems unlikely the virgin birth is. Uh, an invention. Uh, There's also no evidence that maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you're more familiar with the Jewish literature than I am. But as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that Isaiah 714, which is cited in Matthew 1.23, was interpreted as a messianic prophecy prior to Christ. And and so it's unlikely that this detail was, was manufactured due to theological motivations.
0: Right. Yeah. Correct on that. We have, we have no evidence that the text was seen uh, independently uh, as, as a messianic text at that time. So uh, Paul acknowledges that followers of Jesus were convinced that he rose from the dead or believed he rose from the dead. The whole idea that they would not invent an account of resurrection and then die for it, that's the point. You, know, you don't die for a lie. Uh, so he, he plays Sean McDowell talking about we may have put too much trust in tradition in terms of what happened to all the apostles. Did they all die? So can we say plausibly that any of the apostles— Uh, died for their faith or suffered hardship, terrible persecution for their faith, but genuinely believed Jesus rose from the dead. In in other words, if they knew the whole thing was concocted at a certain point, you're being tortured, you're being persecuted, you're going to be killed, you back away from it. So speak to that
2: situation. Absolutely. So the argument for martyrdom, unfortunately, uh, uh, a lot of apologists, a lot of popular apologists have had a tendency to over-exaggerate the uh, the case uh, from martyrdom. And uh, you will often hear it said in popular apologetics books, all of the apostles except for John uh, died as martyrs and that John died on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, for the most part, we don't know how most of the disciples died. Uh, uh, and we do have good evidence for the martyrdom of um, Peter. We have good evidence for the martyrdom of Paul. We have good evidence for the martyrdom of James, the son of Zebedee, as well as James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, actually, is attested by a non-Christian source in uh, Josephus, in Antiquities of the Jews, Volume 20. And uh, we have um, the martyrdom of Peter and Paul attested by uh, First Clement. Uh, We also have the um, their their persec- the sufferings that they endured during the course of their lives attested in uh, the Pauline corpus as well as in the Book of Acts, of course, as well. Um, we have uh, evidence from the Book of Acts for the martyrdom of uh, James, the son of Zebedee, as well. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa, and. So we, um, we, we do have evidence for some of the apostles, um, but I think that – and one might object, and I think Gia has made this point uh, elsewhere, and I think correctly, that for those that died under the persecution from the Emperor Nero ensuing from the fire in 64 AD, it seems that Nero's uh, motivations were largely political rather than theological. Uh, he needed a scapegoat on whom he could place the blame for the fire, and so he pointed towards the Christians. Uh, and so it, it's not at all obvious that uh, Peter and Paul, uh, etc., would have been given opportunity to to recant and thus save their lives by denying the resurrection. But I, I think that what we can say with tremendous confidence, and this is where I would really um, rest the argument, is that the early apostles were willing to voluntarily undergo and endure sufferings and hardships and persecutions, labors, dangers, uh, in some cases, martyrdom, on account of their testimony that Christ was raised from the dead. And that goes a long way towards establishing their sincerity because multi party conspiracies when life or liberty are at stake have a tendency to break down. Uh, and so uh, even if it's not sufficient to establish the sincerity, and I, I do think it does go a long way towards establishing that, it does raise the probability thereof. And so it can be brought into a larger cumulative case. And of course, there are other arguments, too, that bear positively on the sincerity of the apostles.
0: Right. So the idea that we could say is that they genuinely believed that Jesus rose from the dead as opposed to just invented this. And here's some of the psychological backing for that. But but again, let's let's— paint as carefully as we can within the lines, and probably many of us that address many, many different issues don't specialize in all of them, so we might repeat a generalization that should be sharp and wonderful. So here's what I want to do. I, b- I believe Paul Gia sought to be fair with the clips that he played, right? And he's got a link. He's got a link to, uh, to our video, right? So it's not like he's trying to hide anything. But I want to just give one example. First, I want you to see how well he did things. I want you to appreciate how well he did things. But then I, I just want to show an example where he didn't play the whole thing, which would uh, fail then to give the full strength of the argument. So let's go first to, to Paul Gia, and you'll get to see the quality with which he put his video out. Let's go. And then there's the last thing. There's the prophetic word. The prophetic word. You say, well, how do we know he was born in Bethlehem? Prophet said so, but how do we know what happened? We could argue about that.
1: We could. I don't have any reason to think that he was born in Bethlehem. Two gospel authors record two very different stories to try to explain how the man known to be from Nazareth was secretly born in Bethlehem after all.
0: How do we know he was a miraculous birth? We could argue about that. That's pretty
1: much for the Bible tells me so.
0: But the prophets also indicated in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people and then would be received by the gentile world being rejected by your people and accepted by
1: others is a tediously common story it applies to me it applies to weird Yankovic. he's definitely not proud of you what yes he told me to be crystal clear about that also he still thinks the parody songs are stupid and i don't have to tell you how
0: feels about the accordion, do I? Okay, well, Mom, I actually have to go now. Before his own people would receive him back and that he had to come and die before the second. All right, so he's going to get into disputing a little bit more of what I said, but notice he just downplayed it. So you're rejected by your own people, accepted by others. What's the big deal? Let's just watch the whole thing that I said. I don't think he was trying to be unfair, but I just want you to see the whole thing that I said. Let's, let's listen. There's the prophetic word, the prophetic word. You say, well, how do we know he's born in Bethlehem? Prophet said so, but how do we know what happened? We could argue about that. How do we know he was a miraculous birth? We could argue about that. But the prophets also indicated in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people and then would be received by the Gentile world before his own people would receive him back and that he had to come and die before the second temple was destroyed. So how do you plan that out? How do you make that happen? Second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. How do you make these things happen? And then you get rejected by your own people and then accepted by more than 2 billion people around the world. You can't quite manufacture that. Ah, he left that point out. Uh-huh. Again, I don't think he was trying to be deceptive. He just cut, cut it there and he's got a link to the video. So, Paul, I don't think you're trying to be deceptive at all. But the argument stands that the, the, For example, Isaiah 48, where the Messiah speaks as if he's failed in his mission to regather Israel, and God says, no, no, you're going to be a light to the nations. And Isaiah 42, that the coastlands will wait for his teaching. So you're talking about a universal mission rejected by his own people, received by nations all around the world. You can't plan that and orchestrate that. So that is the point that I was making. But, but Paul, why not, why not have a debate with, with Jonathan? He's obviously, you see, he's an evidentialist. Obviously, you see. He wants to talk history, facts, documents, and he's sharpened a couple of things I said or corrected one thing specifically. So by all means, I think you guys should get together. And, and Jonathan, we've only got about a minute and a half, but maybe you just want to say something directly to Paul. And I know you've done a video rebutting some of his stuff. We'll link to that as well. But and anything you want to say directly to Paul?
2: Yeah, just quickly, um, regarding the last point. Um so is that, is Isaiah forty nine actually, not forty eight, Isaiah forty nine six and Isaiah forty two six, where God says that I will make uh the, the you speaking to the Messiah I like the Gentiles so God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And that's something that is highly predicted if Jesus really is uh, the Messiah, but is really quite surprising on the falsity. That one, would, According to the first three chapters of Isaiah 53, he was supposed to be rejected by his own people, which is not especially impressive, because most prophets were at some point, uh, but um, given that he was rejected by his own people, that he would bring, nonetheless, representatives of all nations to recognize the God of Israel. might not be sufficient on its own, but it does tend to move the needle in the direction yes. of Jesus' messianic identity.
0: Yes. So anything, um, 30 seconds, anything you want to say directly to Paul?
2: yeah um yeah th- thanks uh, apologia for making the video as M- dr brown said it was very well made uh, we actually have done a debate a number of years ago um which is on my youtube channel and myself and dr max Baker, heights did a debate with uh, apologia and harry amos on the resurrection and uh, check out my my video that i made and um, i and i see the Apologia hasn't yet made a response to that that i did with tim mcgrew and Lydia mcgrew and eric manning uh, on the resurrection and apologia's uh, remarks concerning that so do check that out and uh, i would love to see your response
0: Wonderful. And friends, talkaboutdoubts.com. Not a place to go and argue, but a, a place to go with honest questions and get connected to specialists in various fields. I'm so thrilled this has been put together, talkaboutdoubts.com. So Paul Gia, thanks for doing the work. I appreciate you taking the time to do it really well done. Hopefully now we've given you and your friends and followers something to think about here on the On the